If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. We're going to start at verse 18 today. And if you don't know where that's at, you can look at the table of contents in the front of your Bible and it'll show you. On Jesus' last night on earth, uh, he prepared his disciples. And that's what we've been reading about the past uh, month or so. He was preparing his disciples for what was going to come very soon. He was going to be arrested and condemned to death. He'd be hung on a cross to die. He'd be buried in a tomb, which wasn't his. And then he'd be resurrected from the dead. And, and after 40 days on earth in his resurrected body, Jesus would leave his disciples. He'd return to God the Father in heaven. It's what we call the ascension. He ascended physically into heaven with many eyewitnesses to see it. And at this last supper, on Jesus' last night on earth, he told his disciples that uh, if they abided in him and if they obeyed his command to take the gospel to the world with truth and with love, then the world would hate them. <laughs> the world would persecute them. And that was the bad news. But the good news, Jesus said, is that he wasn't going to leave them because he would send God the Holy Spirit to be with them. And the Holy Spirit would enter the disciples and live in them. And the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say and teach them what to do. And the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance everything Jesus said. And the Holy Spirit would bear witness. means the Holy Spirit would witness about Jesus while the disciples were bearing witness about Jesus. And the disciples didn't respond to all of this with excitement. Uh, They were filled, it says, with great sorrow. They were fearful. Because Jesus, their master, their God, he was leaving them. And now, Jesus' enemies were going to come after them the same way that they came after Jesus. And this didn't seem like good news at all to the disciples. And, you know, Jesus' words pertain to you and me, too. If we are followers of Jesus, if we believe in him, if we abide in him, if we follow him, then the world is going to hate us, too. That's what Jesus says. So how is any of this good news for us? Uh, How is the Holy Spirit coming to earth after Jesus' public ministry, good news for us. That's what Jesus is going to talk about today. So if you got your Bible, open to John 15, verse 18, and let's ask God to help us. Dear Lord, we open your word, and we thank you for giving it to us in our language today. Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us through your word, to convict us, encourage us, Please minister today, Lord, as we think about our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe. Minister to them and through them. Bring the message of your good news through your church to all peoples. Please give those who are enduring special, um, intense levels of persecution, God, please give them perseverance and endurance and grace and do miracles among them for your glory just as we need you to do miracles among us. Please guard the church, your church with your word. 
You're the light, Jesus. You pierce the darkness of the world and you show us the truth of your glory. And so please, Holy Spirit, do what you say you do. Please illuminate, shine your light on this word for us today. Protect us from the evil one as we read your word now and bless their time next door also. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna begin uh, with John 15, verse 18, so that we can see today's passage in context. And then uh, we're gonna read through chapter 16, verse 15. So let's start at verse 15, 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause, without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speak, or whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. Let's go back up to uh, verse four 
John 16, Jesus says, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So during Jesus' public ministry, the, uh, he didn't tell the disciples about this intense persecution that they would experience after his departure. And he didn't tell them because he was still with them. And while he was with them, he was the one with the target on his back. He was persecuted for being righteous. They weren't. And so we see that just as on the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God toward our sin, so also during his life, Jesus absorbed the persecution that he didn't deserve. And Jesus had been with his disciples physically in the flesh, and so Satan and the world attacked him much more intensely than they attacked the disciples. But since Jesus, the great shepherd, is now in heaven, and since Satan can't get to him, then who does Satan and the world have in its crosshairs now? Jesus' church. I can tell you firsthand that Satan and the world first attacks the leaders of the church. And people like the Weebies, who are pushing back the darkness in unreached places where the gospel's never been before. They're facing major spiritual war there. We need to pray with them. Because it, this is how it works. If the ruler of the world, Satan, can take out the shepherds of the flock and those doing pioneer missions, then he can scatter the flock, he can divide the church, and he can isolate Jesus' sheep and pick them off. Just like that. And this is why Scripture tells us several places to pray for our church leaders. That's why Scripture tells us to pray for one another. Tells us to pursue unity. And this is why I ask for your prayers for myself and for my family and for our church leaders, for people like the Weebies and our missionaries, as we also pray for you and pray for our church here in Stanwood. Jesus was persecuted during his life on earth and he won the war. Praise God, right? He won the war. He won the war for our souls and for his glory when he died on the cross. But until he returns, his church, his bride, will suffer persecution and battle the ruler of this world. And we've got to battle this together. And we battle through prayer and through community. And we do that with truth, by scripture, and with love. That's how we do it. And then Jesus says in verse five, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? That's kind of a confusing verse because a few chapters ago, you probably remember, Peter did ask Jesus where he was going. And so probably, there's a, man, I could tell, I read <laughs> about a lot of different commentaries on this verse, and I'm going to just settle it in one sentence on what I think it might mean, okay? Probably, Jesus is saying here this, you've asked me where I'm going, but you don't fully understand yet why it's so important that I go there, Right? You can ask somebody, where are you going, and just be worried about them going. But you're not really concerned about why are you going there. So probably Jesus is saying, the disciples don't fully understand yet why it's so important that Jesus goes to the Father. And that fits with the context because Jesus is going to flesh that out. In verse 6, he adds, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. 
the, the, the disciples are, they're destroyed here, okay? They're destroyed to hear Jesus say that he is gonna leave them. And all of a sudden they feel like orphans. Even though he's just said, I'm not gonna leave you like orphans. The disciples are lost, they're confused. Because Jesus is, he's the center of their universe. I mean, think about this. They've been living with this guy for three years. He's the person they left everything for. Drop the net, follow Jesus. And now he's leaving them. And so they're not excited right now to take the gospel to the world. They, they just want to stay with Jesus. And I can't blame them. By, by God's grace, we would feel the same way about Jesus if we were in their shoes. But it's important to remember that all of this took place before Jesus went to the cross. The disciples couldn't see at this point how crucifying Jesus is a good thing, okay? Obviously, they probably saw bits and pieces, but they didn't see the whole picture yet. The disciples were sorrowful because this was before the resurrection. They hadn't yet seen Jesus rise from the dead in his glorified, awesome body. This conversation all happened before Jesus ascended to heaven, before the Holy Spirit filled the church with power. And so at this point, the disciples just couldn't see how great it, I mean, how great it would be having the Holy Spirit with them. That was new. They couldn't really wrap their minds around that. That's kind of abstract. And so in verse 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And Jesus uses the phrase again, I tell you the truth again. Probably because he wants them to know he's telling them the honest truth. He's not just saying something nice to try to make them feel better. He's telling them the truth. He's saying, you guys, I'm serious. I know you can't see it now, but it's, it's way better for you that I go back to heaven now because I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you and he's gonna help you in new ways and I promise you he's coming and he's gonna bring with him this whole new chapter of God's powerful work in the world. And like he always does, Jesus did exactly what he promised to do. About a week after he returned to heaven, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit from heaven onto this first group of Christians when they were gathered together and ever since that day, the Holy Spirit has indwelt Christians. He's indwelt Jesus' church in an unprecedented and, and powerful way that he simply didn't work before Jesus ascended to heaven. And Jesus says in the passage that the Holy Spirit would do three main things on earth. The Holy Spirit would convict the world, he would guide the disciples, and he would glorify Jesus. He would convict the world, he would guide the disciples, and he would glorify Jesus. So let's look first at verses 8 to 11 to see how the Spirit convicts the world. Jesus says, and when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So in verse eight, Jesus says the Holy Spirit does something to something concerning something, okay? 
Jesus says the Holy Spirit does something to something concerning something. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts. And in this context, to convict means to convince something of its shameful sin against God and to urge it to repent. Okay? This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit will convince something of its shameful sin and urge it to repent. And, and to repent means to feel sorry, to, to genuinely feel remorseful about one's rebellion against God and then to turn away from that rebellion and to turn to God in faith instead. So what is the thing that the Holy Spirit convicts? The world. The world. The world is the, we defined it last week as, it, it's the created moral order of our existence that is actively rebelling against God and his word. Okay? So Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit would convince our rebellious world of its shameful sin and urge it to repent. Ephesians 2 says that all of us who are Christians, who trust in Jesus, used to belong to the world. And we rebelled against God and we dishonored God, but this is what God did in response to our hatred of him. He defied our hatred of him, and he loved us still, okay? The Holy Spirit convicted us of our sin so that we could see it, so that we could see our sin against him, so that we could feel remorseful about it, not feel, not delight in our sin anymore, but feel remorseful about it and confess it to God and then turn to God in faith. And then what does the Holy Spirit convict the world about? Jesus lists three things in verse eight. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he elaborates on each of those. In verse nine, Jesus says that the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So the Spirit convicts those in the world concerning sin because they don't believe in Jesus. And the most wicked sin in the world is not to believe in God. And Jesus is God. F.B. Meyer, who is a pastor from the early 20th century, he wrote this about Jesus and about humanity. About Jesus, here is the supreme manifestation of moral beauty, but man has not eyes for it. Here is the highest revelation of God's desire for man to be reconciled with him and be at one with him, his happy child. But man either despises or spurns his overtures. Here is the offer of pardon for all the past, of heirship of all the promises, of blessedness in all the future, but man owns that he is indifferent to the existence and claims of God. Here is God in Christ beseeching him to be reconciled, declaring how much the reconciliation has cost, but unbelieving man absolutely refuses to be at peace. No trace of tears in his voice, no shame on his face, no response to God's love in his heart. 
left to ourselves, we do not believe in Jesus. We will not believe. We, we don't believe in sin if we belong to the world. We don't believe we need a savior. I mean, there, you know probably there are all sorts of tactics that you can use to, to help a person see that they're a sinner. It could be as simple as you know taking them through the Ten Commandments and asking them, have you broken any of these? And that might be the right approach to reach certain people, but we know this. It's one thing to acknowledge that you're a sinner with your words, and it's an entirely different thing to believe in your heart that you're a sinner. See, we must, because God's given us this privilege and command, we must share God's truth, his word with the world, but only God, the Holy Spirit, can convict people in their hearts of sin and unbelief. Only the Holy Spirit can truly convince a person that he or she has rebelled against their maker and that they must repent and turn to Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can convict the world of all the sinful things it does which all stem from the fact that they don't believe in Jesus. Every evil thing stems from the fact that we don't believe God. Christians, the the Holy Spirit fills us. He empowers us to love the world, to serve the world, to share God's good news with the world, but the Holy Spirit alone does the work of convicting the world of sin. The Spirit doesn't assist us. He doesn't help us out in convicting the world of sin. The Spirit does all the work of convicting people of sin according to his word. Think about, I don't even think the Weebies are in here. I think they went to junior church so I could talk to them. But I'll talk about them. Um, I think about them though. They're going in this country. I mean, never heard the gospel or possibly, there's, I mean, there's darkness that's opposing uh, this light of Jesus among them. What is the hope that anybody there would actually go totally countercultural, which would mean they could be ex- excommunicated from their family, killed, and trust in Jesus. The hope is the Holy Spirit. That's the hope, that the Holy Spirit will convict them. And by God's grace, that's what Jesus says he loves to do. The Holy Spirit convicts people. The Holy Spirit does, this is a miracle. We have to understand this. This is a miracle whenever anybody by the Holy Spirit is enabled to see I'm a sinful and selfish and prideful person. (laughs) I'm nothing without God. That's a miracle. Whether it's for the first time that the Holy Spirit convicts us of that or the thousands, that spiritual conviction is evidence that God is at work. Because that's not from the flesh. That is not from the flesh or this world. That's from God. I don't know if you've ever, you think about your workplace, your neighbors, your friends, Loved ones, if, if you've ever, have you ever tried to convince a person who doesn't really believe in sin that he or she needs forgiveness? It's impossible. I mean, really, when people don't believe that the Bible is true or that we're accountable to God or that God is holy or that God actually punishes wickedness, then people don't see the need to be forgiven because in their eyes, they haven't done anything wrong. Or at least they haven't done anything nearly as bad as it does in other people they can point the finger to, right? How many, you think about the world, 
how many non-Christians do you know who are concerned about sin? How many of them hate the idea of doing anything to offend God? Not one. That's not because they're worse than us. It's because that's not how any of us think without the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Only the Spirit convicts convicts us of sin. And he often works through our words. He does do that. This does not mean our words are pointless. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying all glory and credit goes to the Spirit, and we need to pray for the Spirit's help. And he uses our words. He uses our conversations. He uses us pointing people to the truth of Scripture to work in people's lives. And he uses our prayers. And that's why the Bible is filled with pray, 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 pray. God's saying, I invite you to lean on me to work in your life. <laughs> we pray. Our, we know this. Our, our, every effort of evangelism and missions is futile without the power of the Holy Spirit. And also as Christians, we ask God to convict us of our sin, right? This isn't just about the world. This is also what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers because if God's given us new hearts that don't want sin, then we're not gonna want sin anymore. And we wanna worship God with our lives. And so it's a bold and faithful, faith, uh, believing in Christ's prayer to say, Lord, would you point out my faults and anything offensive to you, God? Would you purge that from my life, please? And as Christians, this is the good news. When he does that, and because and you, you just have to open the word to see, oh, yep, I fall short, and I've fallen short today. This is where the gospel comes in. As a Christian who believes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will show you your sin, and then he will show you the grace of God on the cross of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who now bids you to come to him and to confess your sins. And remember, you're forgiven of your sins. And he purifies you from your sin so that you can continue to try to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. The gospel is, it's this great, it's what we land on when we fall. Every time we land on Jesus. It's awesome. And it takes all the fear Um, of condemnation out of our relationship with God because therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Romans 8, 1 says. And then in addition to convicting the world about sin, Jesus says in verse 10 that the the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. Says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Righteousness, okay, big words here. Righteousness is the rightness or wrongness of something according to God, okay? Righteousness is, is rightness. So God is perfectly righteous. He is the one who determines good from evil. So if you want to know what righteousness is, it's God, okay? Um, righteousness is also what God wants for us. And it is what he requires of us to be in a relationship with him. And a rebellion against him, our sin, makes us unrighteous. And that's a big problem. Because according to verse 10 here, the Holy Spirit convicts the world about its unrighteousness 
and about its inability to be righteous by itself. But the Spirit also convicts the world about Jesus' perfect righteousness, which can be ours through faith. Let's talk about each of those things one at a time, okay? First of all, Romans uh, 3.23 and a lot of other passages tell us the truth that every one of us have sinned against God. And left to ourselves, we are, we're gonna do the wrong thing. (laughs) That's, we're gonna do the wrong thing in God's sight and we have done. We're not fit to call upon God to be our friend. We're not fit to be in his presence. We've done wrong things and we are in the wrong for doing those things. And God's, get this though, because God is holy. He's set apart, he's other. That's what it means. He's unlike any creation. He is other. He is righteous. And what that means is he punishes wrongdoing. He punishes unrighteousness. Because he wouldn't be righteous if he just left it alone. See that? Why does God have to punish? Because he's righteous and holy and good. And so we read in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so the Holy Spirit convicts the world, this unbelieving world, which we once belonged to, of its unrighteousness. And the Spirit is able to spiritually, supernaturally convince the world that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against them. I mean, even people who haven't read much of the Bible know inside their hearts that some things are right and some things are wrong. But those who belong to the world, it says here, suppress the truth so that they can keep doing what's wrong. (laughs) And in addition to convincing the world that it's wrong, the Holy Spirit also convinces the world that it doesn't have what it takes to be right. We humans don't have it in ourselves to, to do what's right. We, we don't have in ourselves what it takes to be restored to God. God says, and get this, in the book of Isaiah, God says the good works, the good things that the world does in God's sight are dirty rags, okay? Apart from Christ, we, see, we see these good things we do in the flesh. Man, this is so impressive, But our holy God tells the world, your works are disgusting. And God is more graphic than that in scripture. He says, your works are disgusting. You're not, and this is why he's talking to the world, because you're not doing good works to glorify me. You're doing good works to feel better about yourself. The good works of the world provide a counterfeit righteousness not a real righteousness before God. James Montgomery Boyce illustrates this idea of counterfeit righteousness by telling the story of a group of prisoners of war in World War II. They were allowed to receive care packages which included Monopoly games to help them pass the time. And they would take the Monopoly money and use it as their camp currency. And in one instance, a POW did really well at Monopoly and ended up winning almost all of the money, which amounted to thousands and thousands of dollars in Monopoly money. And when he returned home from the war, 
He brought this big pile of paper, which he had long come to think of as his real money, and he tried to deposit it at the bank. And of course, they rejected his money. That's not real money. And likewise, humanity has developed a counterfeit system of righteousness that has no currency in the courts of heaven. The righteousness of the world is like monopoly money to our holy God. And on our own, we can't see the futility of this money, this play money. The Holy Spirit's got to convince us that our worldly righteousness is counterfeit, that he alone can give us true righteousness. The Holy Spirit must convince us that the only way to truly be righteous is to receive God's righteousness through faith in Jesus. And the Spirit shows us that only Jesus Christ is truly righteous. Only Jesus, uh, we need Jesus to, to give us his righteousness, which God the Father verified his righteousness by Jesus' resurrection and ascension to God. See, this is what Jesus is saying in verse 10. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and why was he raised? For our justification. Justification means God declares you righteous. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose justified, righteous in the sight of God the Father, completely pure again from the sin that he bore on the cross. And just as Jesus' followers were united with Jesus, baptized into his death, so also Jesus' followers have been raised with him in his resurrection. And so it means we are justified, we are declared righteous before God the Father because Jesus is declared righteous before God the Father. That's the union we have in Christ. It's incredible. Wayne Grudem writes, when the Father in essence said to Christ, all the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty but righteous in my sight. He was thereby making the declaration that would also apply to us once we trusted in Christ for salvation. In this way, Christ's resurrection gave final proof that he had earned our righteousness, our justification. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for the world. Isn't that amazing? He does this for the world who doesn't want God. He convicts the world of its unrighteousness. He convicts it of its inability to be righteous on its own. And then he convicts the world, you need Jesus who is perfectly righteous on your behalf and who says, you can have my righteousness if you believe in me. That's amazing. This is, this is how God loves us. <laughs> this is amazing. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and then also about a third thing, concerning judgment. In verse 11, he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. And in the original Greek, it's past tense, which makes so a better translation would be the ruler of this world has been judged. The Holy Spirit convinces this unbelieving world about several realities concerning spiritual judgment. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth of his word that Satan is not in ultimate power and control, okay? 
The Spirit testifies about this. Jesus is in control. Satan's not. Jesus said in John 14, 30 that Satan has no claim on him. And also Satan has no claim on everybody who belongs to Jesus. Amen. And Satan isn't the world's judge. You don't answer to Satan. You answer to God. John 5, 22 says that God the Father has handed over all judgment to Jesus now so that Jesus is the one who declares us righteous and he's already declared us not guilty. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It's already past tense if we're in Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of the reality that Jesus has already condemned Satan. See, Satan has not, you read the book of Revelation, read the Bible, and we read that Satan has not yet been eternally punished in the lake of fire. But where we're at in redemptive historical history right now is that Jesus already defeated Satan on the cross and Satan's future is certain, okay? Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And the Holy Spirit, who Jesus would send and is in his church now, convicts the world of the reality that because of the world's sinfulness and because of its unrighteousness, it is like Satan, already condemned by God. Remember in John 3, Jesus said he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world because the world has already been condemned. And so by his grace, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of those who belong to the world to enable them to see that it's not just Satan who is judged and punished. Everybody who rejects Jesus is judged and punished. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. Why does he do this? Not because he hates the world, but because he loves the world despite its hatred of him. And according to the riches of his grace, God predestined to declare many sinners righteous in Christ and no longer eternally condemned. Wow. Okay, we've been focusing on verses eight through 11. Uh, where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now let's look at the rest of the passage where Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide the disciples and uh, he will bring glory to Jesus. So in verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus had a lot more that he wanted to share with the disciples, but he knew that it would be too much for them to take at the moment. And so instead of saying, well, I guess... You'll never know what was actually on my mind. <laughs> he says, I'll let the Holy Spirit tell you everything else I want to say. And he says in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says that the spirit of truth is coming. He's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Of the Trinity. He is the spirit of truth. Hence, he does not lie. Okay? So the Holy Spirit, what this means is this. He's not a rogue spirit. 
He is the Spirit of God who speaks what the Father and Son tell him to speak. And the Holy Spirit would guide these disciples and the apostles in all truth. The Spirit would declare to them what was to come, which included what would happen in the coming days until that future day when Jesus would return to earth. And it's important to see this in this context, that Jesus is talking specifically here to this generation, his generation of disciples whom God would use to record his words in what we now call the New Testament. Okay. I didn't figure this out until seminary. I remember wrestling with this. Well, how did the disciples know what to write? And how did they remember this stuff? It was through the Holy Spirit. Okay? And this is Jesus explaining how that works. The 27 books of the New Testament were not written by random men who had hallucinated or who had fabricated the events of Jesus' life or of the early church. And one of the reasons we know this is because the writers did not write like these things out in the woods, okay, and then leave them for future generations to find. The writers had contemporaries who would not have allowed such fantastical accounts to be considered truth, which is why Paul says, if you don't believe me, go talk to the other 500 people who were there. <laughs> go talk to people while they're still alive. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't have allowed writings to be included in the Bible that shouldn't be there, and he didn't. Many fictional writings by deceitful authors were rejected in the first few centuries from the canon of the New Testament. They never made it in. And obviously the Holy Spirit still speaks to us today, but the canon of Scripture is closed. Okay? There's no prophetic word today that can take away or complete what God has already said in his word. And the Spirit speaks to us today to help us, to encourage us, to minister to us, and to bear witness to the truth of what he's already said, to the truth of his scripture. And so by guiding the disciples and revealing to them what to preach and what to include in their writings, the Spirit was bringing glory to Jesus. That's what Jesus says. He says this of the Spirit in verses 14 and 15. He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit took Jesus' words, which the Father revealed to him, and he declared it to the disciples. And so Jesus says that we can be sure that what the disciples have recorded in Scripture is the word of God. It is the self-revelation of God. And by declaring Jesus' gospel to the disciples and by guiding them with its truth and by convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, the Holy Spirit, in doing this, brings glory to Jesus. And that doesn't mean that the Spirit adds to the glory of Jesus. You glorify, and I've got a, I mean, this is Piper, okay? This is John Piper. He's helped me understand this. It doesn't mean that the Spirit adds to the glory of Jesus. It means that the Holy Spirit reveals how glorious Jesus already is, okay? And by showing us the glory of Jesus, the Holy Spirit shows us the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit at the same time because they're one God, 
They're one God and three persons. When one of them is worshiped, all of them are worshiped. When you're praying, you can pray to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all there, okay? There's one God. Even though we don't have Jesus living with us in the flesh anymore, it does not mean God is dead, okay? On the contrary, Jesus says this, He's risen from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of God. And he is more alive than any of us can fathom. And that's why he sent us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent to us from the Father has blessed his church. He is blessing his church. He will continue to bless his church in ways that simply we would not be blessed had Jesus stayed on earth in the flesh. The Father sent Jesus to accomplish our salvation on the cross. And the Father sent his spirit to apply what Jesus did on the cross to our souls to save us. And the spirit convicts us and he gives us faith. He makes us new. He gives us new hearts that want God. He seals us, we read in the New Testament, as God's children. The Holy Spirit helps us to pray even when we don't know what to pray. The Spirit ministers to us in our weakness. He is what makes our ministries powerful. He illuminates God's word for us so that we can read it and believe it and submit to it and be transformed by it. It's the Holy Spirit. So I don't know about you, but I need to acknowledge the Holy Spirit more in my life. Let's lean on his power together. Let's ask the Spirit for guidance because by acknowledging and leaning on and asking the Holy Spirit for help, we are acknowledging and leaning on and asking our triune God for help, okay? So may we seek to to stay in step with the Holy Spirit in our lives while at the same time we are submitting to his scriptures and rest in the gospel of his grace. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thanks for giving us this passage. There's a lot of meat in this passage, and we thank you, God. We need to just savor this, meditate on it, and we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would help us this week to to meditate on it, chew on it, show show us how exactly this applies in all of its different ways in my life. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you for breaking into the world, Holy Spirit, for doing for us what we could not do by ourselves. You showed us Jesus, Holy Spirit, You showed us that he's the only righteous one, that there is no way to a righteous God except through the righteous God. And so you have died on the cross and you have made us the righteousness of Christ when we trust in you. Thank you for that. I pray for for those here and those who aren't here, God, that you would convict them, Holy Spirit, of this wonderful truth. Conviction isn't, It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a great thing. And that's what we see in this passage, that you convict us of these wonderful truths because you love. You love us. And so help us to remember that, Lord. Strengthen us this week. Strengthen your church. Strengthen those Christians around the world who are undergoing severe persecution in different forms. Help us to remember them in our prayers. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.